Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I am happy to have for my guest today, B.B. Wood, uh, Barbara, <laughs> and she's going to tell us about her book, The Violent Years, that, that she wrote. And I'm, I'm very happy to talk to you today, Barbara. Could you tell us a little bit about you? Well, I was born and raised in West Virginia, went to school there as well, got married and ended up living in Europe for 10 years where I had oh. my children one in Germany and one in Spain. And then I came back to the States and um, uh, where I became a teacher and I did very well, I was very successful as a teacher until I got Parkinson's disease. And once I had that, um, I was beginning to lose my ability to write. It was affected mostly my right hand. And eventually I had to quit teaching. So I had two big uh, stresses to deal with. Yeah, uh, at that time. And but at the time when I finally retired, which was in March of 2015, that month also my father died. Mm. And I so I had a lot to deal with. I was extremely ill at the time, uh, but I soon recovered and I began drawing. I had actually started drawing while I was still teaching. And and then uh, after a, about a year or two of drawing and I did really well and a lot of my um my artwork is on my author page. There are links to that as well. But a after a while, I started writing books and I, I didn't intend to write books. I was just kind of thinking about stuff and starting to write it down. I was wait a minute, I have a book here. And I wrote three novels before this book about my father came up. And the way that it came about with my father is that in 1983, apparently I had asked him to write about his life story. And in 1989, he actually did that. And he recorded 14 tapes, Wow, 14 audio tapes. And I, I didn't get to hear them because at the time I was busy raising kids and starting a new career, my teaching career and all that. I was in, into science at that time, I'm always in science. And so I, I just simply forgot about it. But, in, but two years ago, uh, my son was going through the, our closet and found the tapes. He says, what are these? And I said, oh, my goodness, I forgot about this 40, 50 years ago. Anyway, so well, we could listen to him because the technology was too old. But he said he would figure out how to get it translated, which he did. He gave to me, and he said, and he gave to me for Christmas. And he said, mom, you really need to listen to these. I think what is on here is pretty important. And indeed, he had addressed the tapes to me. And of the tapes, the last eight were covering the years 1940 to 1950. And he called those the violent years. He named that. Not because people were being hurt or things were being damaged, but because of the tumultuous changes, the dramatic changes in fortune, both positive and negative, that were occurring to him during that time. And at the end of the tapes, which ended in 1950, he said, and so my daughter Barbara was born, so ending the violent years. Mm. And I knew that I had to write his story. 
when I did this, I started off using his tra the transcripts from the tapes. That's where I wanted to start. And I knew I wanted to focus on just that decade, although he had six other tapes of the rest of his life, which I also listened to. I wanted to focus on that because it was very specific. But I realized right away that I was going to have a difficult time because well, two things. One is the way that he spoke. He, his thoughts were very organized and clear. But he spoke in a very folksy sort of manner, which is very easy to listen to, but terrible when you try to transcribe it. It looks awful on both yeah. the printed page. And furthermore, he was talking about a lot of things that the reader wouldn't know what he was talking about, people and places and such. So I realized I needed two stories here. One, his first person account, which are the actual transcripts from his tapes for those eight tapes. And the other is a second storyline alternating between those other chapters with a third person narration to contrast his first person telling about his life growing up and what it was like and what happened to him so that the reader would understand what was going on. And these two stories are intertwined. Anyway, so that gets you pretty much up to where I wrote the book. Now, obviously, I was under a lot of stress there, but oh, and COVID hit in the middle of this. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> now, my father had died in 2015, so he was not around for me to talk to about the, this book. My mother still is. She's 97 now. She's very sharp, very mobile. And I was able to go through this with her, which was important because she was stuck in a nursing home when I first got this. It's now in assisted living. And she had never heard the tapes. Mm. She had never heard some of these stories. She had never heard. And so I went through those with her. We're talking on the phone and I would type up stuff and I, the secretary would, because they were, they were confined and they were quarantined a lot of this time. And she would, the secretary would send printed pages under the door so my mother could read them. And, um, and then we would talk about all the things that were going on. And she added a lot of context and explanation to, to these particular stories. And I think it was a very important thing for all of us to deal with not only COVID, but the death of my father, the whole family. And, you know, this is just fascinating to me, especially because those those years between 1940 and 1950 were uh, very significant for my family. My mom and dad were recently married and, and they had my sister. And there was the three of them. And they assumed that dad wouldn't be drafted because he was married and because he had a baby. And the first people they drafted weren't married and didn't have babies. Then they started doing people who were married but didn't have children. And then it got to the point where they were drafting people who were married and had children. And so he ended up going into the army. And he he spent the rest of his life as a, an advocate for veterans and did a lot of wonderful work for that. But I never could get anything out of him about what happened. And right. Yeah, I just I always wondered what what shaped their lives during that time. And with with mom, mom wouldn't talk about it either because I could just imagine in those days being all of a sudden alone with the baby and not right. knowing where her husband was or what he was doing or if he was safe. And yeah. Well, my father's story from 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 the for the war years—that's really what it was about. As a matter of fact, the book starts with him 
sitting in a boat waiting to land at Normandy. Mm. And so he came wow. came he came ashore there in the second wave uh, and fought for a couple of months and then he was captured and he, they they sent him to a German prisoner of war camp actually two different ones and then he escaped from the mm. war, war camp made his way to Poland and finally got back in a very dramatic reunion with the family because they had heard he was missing in action and nothing else after that they didn't know he was mm. alive and he was one of the first guys to come back. And then right away, he started training for the Olympics. And in 1948, he was on, he represented Penn State on the United States men's gymnastics team, like I said, in 1948. And in the middle of this, of course, he had everything going on with my mother. And uh, my father was, it turned out, a prolific writer, which I did not know about when I heard these tapes. And I asked my mother a question about something. She said, well, it's in the letters. And I said, what letters? She says, I have lots of letters. How many? Wow. 400? I mean, he wrote every day. He wrote all the time. And he also had um, um, poetry. He wrote her lovely poetry for her birthday. They met when he was 16 and she was 14 at a dance. It was quite a dramatic meeting because she said that he was walking down. She heard she was with another date waiting for a dance to start. No one was there yet. And she could hear somebody walking down this long hallway whistling American Patrol, which is a, a patriotic song. And this, what she said, I, she had no idea who was coming down that hall, but she knew that whoever walked through that door, she was going to marry. Wow. She knew. And when he walked in and turned around, she said, time stopped. Time stopped. She doesn't remember anything else about the rest of the night, except that. That night when she came home to see her mother, she said, I met the man I'm going to marry tonight. And of course, of course, that was my father. So uh, they were to, and so he wrote her lots of poetry. And, and I didn't know, I had never, didn't know anything about all these letters. So suddenly I hear I'm with all these tapes and everything. Now I've got my sister who apparently was keeping them. And so she sent copies of everything to me so that I could then fill out and find out the rest of the story that was going on with that. It was quite quite an eye-opener for my family because we solved a lot of mysteries about things we didn't understand why, but once we got the letters and the tapes and everything together, then everything started to make sense. But that was, that was the, those were the years that he talked about from 19, uh, 1940, 1950, where the, was the war and the Olympics, and then eventually moving to West Virginia, where I'm from, and settling in there. Wow. That, that's just, incredible story <laughs> I love it uh, it's amazing how much uh, was written down at that time with different letters and things that went back and forth I couldn't find anything like that about my parents I was hoping that they had written to each other at some point and I think they did and they probably just didn't leave anything where anybody else could read it uh, <laughs> well it probably had a we had a lot of those I think as, as mm -hmm. well you know, we found a couple of small notes up in my attic, and I don't know how they got up there, but they were little teeny notes that he had written to her in 1941. And um, anyway, when he returned from the war, it was very dramatic because she got a phone call from his sister saying, he's back, he's here, and he's walking to your house. He'll be there in two minutes. Well. That's, that's from thinking he'd been dead for eight, almost a year, 
Oh, wow. And all of a sudden he's walking up and she stood out front and she said she could see him just coming up there looking like he always did. Just all spit and polish and marching right up to him just purposely, very determined. And he uh, he came up to the steps and just grabbed her and just gave her the best kiss she'd ever had. Her oh, wow. Life. Yeah, was really, there were a lot of great stories in, in the oh, book. Yeah, that's so romantic. How wonderful. Yeah. Oh, a lot of good romance in this book. Oh, that's great. There's a lot of there's a lot of sad stories in there too, but there are a lot of really good ones. What's your favorite story? My favorite story is when he was the head cheerleader at Penn State University. <laughs> uh, it was 1948. He had uh, just come back from the Olympics, so he was he was what they call a big man on campus, BMOC. <laughs> And like I said, he was the head cheerleader before he was in the Olympics. And before the war, he had, uh, well, as soon as he came back from from the war, there were lots of GIs coming back. They were all flooding the campuses, especially Penn State. And they had nowhere to put all these guys. And And some of them had families and everything else. And it was very hard finding housing. So they had all the, or classes, where to put the, put all the people in classes. So they had a whole bunch of satellite campuses all around the state, near State College, where Penn State is. And uh, he was just a regular cheerleader then, just before the uh, the Olympics. And he what he did, because they were all GIs, and he was a GI, he went around to every single one of these campuses, every one of them, and he taught them all the cheers. Wow. He taught them how he, he went so that when they would come to the to the football games, they knew what was going on. But the thing is, they all knew him personally. And when two things happened with that, one is when he was in the when he was uh, trying out for the Olympics, they thought all these other guys were going to get it first. You know, we were going to be getting on. And when they called out his name pretty early, the place went nuts for him because they knew him personally. But later on, after the then when he was in the Olympics, of course, then it really everybody knew him. He was all kind of clubs and such. But what he was able to do at, at the, um, the football games, he knew the, um, of course, they had the mascot, the, the, the lion. And he did a lot of funny things with the lion. But he and my mother also were the ones that came up with cards. They, they, they got one foot square cards, blue on one side, white on the other, and all had a code and a seat number on these cards. Hundreds and hundreds of them. And every game, they would take them out with the cheerleaders and they would put all these cards in the proper places on on the seats. And when my father would uh, yell, code 53, and people look at their card, they they would turn either the blue or the white card, depending on what the code was. And it would spell out stuff, you know, because people were holding up these cards. And they would spell out, you know, go Penn State or defense or whatever they needed. Because that was, of course, before computers and all that kind of thing. But the thing that was, to me, was the funniest thing that he did. And we had skits that he did with the Nittany Lion. But during the game, periodically, he would lead a cheer and he would stop in the middle of the cheer to stop. For instance, one cheer that I found that actually was a real cheer was called the Nittany Lion. And what he would do is he would use the megaphone and he'd yell, and, and then he'd take his fist and shoot it up into the air. And as soon as he did that, the entire crowd would go, and, and then he'd go, I, and he'd raise his hand and they'd all go, I, and then he'd say, double T, double T, A, 
and then he didn't raise his hand. And the place was silent. Nobody messed this up. And he's, he'd say, hey, but he didn't raise his fist. And he goes, sit down. This is in the middle of a football game. He'd sit down. <laughs> and he'd be over there for quite a while, apparently. And then he would finally get, find a, a break or it was the end of timeout or whatever it was. He'd get back on and he'd go, he just put his fist up in the air and they'd all go, hey. <laughs> and then and then he'd do N, Y, uh, Nittany, Lions, Roar, Lions, Roar, or something like that at the end. But he was he was able to completely control the entire stadium just with his motions. Wow. Because they all knew him. And I had so much fun writing that chapter. There are other chapters that are really funny too, but that one uh, just kind of captured my imagination. That is so cool. I, I just love that. Uh, often we don't think of our our parents as energetic younger people. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that's that's just wonderful. I really like that. Was was he before he went off to war? Was he interested in gymnastics? Yes, he actually started that very little. Um, his mother died when he uh, quite young, and he lost his brother as well. But that was a little; those were a little bit later. But it was the depression, mm-hmm. and they had nothing. And there were five kids, and um, the only thing that he could do is they would his sisters would take him to the YMCA where he learned to swim and dive. He was a superb swimmer and diver as well, and gymnastics. He started then, but he really got into it uh, when he got to high school, and he had a coach, Paul Keebler. And Paul Keebler kind of took over for his father because his father was just barely making ends meet. The mother was gone. The sibling, the older, he was the youngest of six. And the other siblings were on their way and they were gone. And so he was kind of left to, him, to himself and he became actually kind of a neighborhood hoodlum. <laughs> and he got into a lot of trouble for a lot of things. And some of those stories are in there just, just crashing. And they would used to play cops and robbers with his buddies they had these cap pistols you know they had but they would just make a little pop sound and they would run all through the neighborhood and by running through the neighborhood this was philadelphia in the row houses in the slums of philadelphia and when i say run through the house I mean they ran through the houses i mean they'd run through through the living room and then you know jump out in the porch other people's house they didn't know and they run across the rooftops and one time he crashed into this um he uh, crashed into what was called an aerial. It's a, a big wire that's suspended on huge poles on top of the houses. And it just, the whole thing fell down and crumbled, fell down and between houses and broke wet. It just made a mess. And of course, they they scattered because of the, they knew the police were coming. So my father nonchalantly walked back to the house, hoping it, you know, they wouldn't notice that he was not there. <laughs> and when he, as soon as he walked near the house, there was a whole bunch of people and the cop car was sitting out in front. And they all yelled, there he is, there's a hoodlum, there's the guy. <laughs> and they said, did you do it? He said, yeah, I, I did. So they threw him in the cop car and, and, and the police. And they uh, ran him around for about 10, 15 minutes, telling him you know, that this was dangerous, that he could have injured people and so on. And he, and he said, yes, sir. And they took him back to the house. And he, he went in and he waited for his father. And his father said nothing to him, nothing. And which was, but then he and the older brother got tools and materials, which were hard to get. And they took the time and the money and went back up there and repaired everything. And my father said, there was nothing that they could have done that would have crushed him more 
than that. And so he, so there was a lot of stories like that, but uh, Paul Keebler was the one that uh, got him really going in gymnastics, um, actually saved him when he came back from the war because he had a lot of guilt about surviving. And his coach helped him with that uh, renew, renewal after the war. So gymnastics was a really important part of his life. And it was a lot of fun as a dad because we used to, you know, he flip us around and, you know, we were always doing all kind of crazy things around the house or at the beach. That sounds like that so sounds much like fun. It was. I, finding all these things, I'm sure, is what inspired you to write the book. And as you said, you had Parkinson's. And it, was that a challenge to be able to write with your Parkinson's? Absolutely. <laughs> because I, one of the reasons I had to stop was because I, I couldn't write with my right hand. I uh, so cannot type. I couldn't type really very well to begin with, but now I'm down to one finger with mm. my left hand. All my books were written, and this book was written one finger, <laughs> left hand. Wow. Over and over again. And I tried doing, you know, uh, one of those things where you can just talk and it will transcribe. No, it was mm -hmm. worse. It was worse. I had to make so many corrections. <laughs> I just finally gave, gave up on that. But it, that was quite difficult. And the thing that was interesting to me and that, that threw off my, neuro you know, my neurology guy, my uh, um, Parkinson's doctor, was that it, I was a science person. And as I lost the ability for my right hand, I do all my typing and everything was now with my left hand. I switched sides. And with when I switched one side of the brain from the science, I switched over to the arts at the same time that I did that. And uh, so he was he was quite amazed to, to watch me uh, do all this drawing, first of all, with my left hand, and then typing all these books with my left hand as well. Wow, that's amazing. I, I know with, with my grief, one of the things that I started doing was drawing, and I, I never thought that I could draw. Mm -hmm. I had done preliminary things when I was working in theater and had to get sketches for things, but that's that's as far as I went, and that had convinced me that I could not draw. So I found it hard enough to learn how to to draw with my right hand, which is my dominant hand. I can't imagine trying to do it with my left hand. Well, I didn't think I could do it either. Apparently, I could. <laughs> Can't draw with my right hand, but I can draw with my left hand. I still, I can do signatures because I have medication now. And so I, when it wears off, you can tell I have Parkinson's because I get tremors in my, my right hand still. But that was 13 years ago when I got Parkinson's. Wow. So it's been, it's been quite the journey. And it, it, they say that, you know, when... When one door closes, another door opens. And that was definitely the case for me. And being able to write these books. One thing I realized with my book, with this, this book, both my sister and my brother got these tapes the same time I did. They listened to them back then. Hmm. And they did not act on them. And I realized if I had read them back then, I would have not acted on them either because I wasn't in a point in my life where it was important to do this. And when it finally, when I listened to the tapes, it almost felt like I was called. So probably the best way to describe it. This is something I had to do that people needed to know about this. My mother told me that she couldn't figure out why she was living so long. She's almost 98 now. She's 97. And she said, 
I realize now that I live this long so I could help you with this book. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. I, I'm so happy you shared your story with us because a, a lot of times when somebody dies, people don't know what to do. They, they feel like they need to do something or there's something that could help them with, with moving forward, but they don't know what it is. And you sure found what helped you and to, to bring this gift uh, to you with being able to accomplish all this as well as the gift to the world to be able to hear this story because it's it's quite a wonderful story yeah was, they always talk about the greatest generation and i was thinking my father isn't extraordinary but he's he's an ordinary representative of the greatest generation and what a gift that he gave me and maybe others as well by taking the time to, to record those wonderful, wonderful tapes. That's so great. I'm, I'm all about writing and I, I help people learn how they can write to help them with their grief all the time. And th this is a wonder, wonderful example of it. It doesn't mean you ever had to be a writer. You can just write in your journal and write someplace. But the, the writing, wouldn't you say it, it helped you with dealing with your Parkinson's and with your memories of your dad? Well, I, I think in a lot of ways that the, the dealing with those situations allowed me to write this particular book rather than the book helped me deal because it actually occurred a couple of you know years afterward. But I but it's like a meant to be kind of thing, because if I hadn't gone through all of that and uh, and my father's death actually was a very peaceful death. And it's in, it's in the book. I did put that at the end in an epilogue. It was a very peaceful situation. And so there was a lot of turmoil with that. So many other things do have turmoil associated with them. But by going through all those things before I heard the tapes allowed me to bring them to life for other people, I think, in a way that I, if I had read, if I had listened to them in 1989, would have never happened. Yeah. Wow. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm sure people are going to be fascinated by getting their hands on this book. That it's something that uh, will be inspirational, not only because of the story that you tell in the book, but of your story and your writing of it under these circumstances, I, I think is quite amazing. So thank you so much for, for joining me today. And, and the book is available on Amazon now, along with my other books as well. That's great. I, I, I hope they I hope they enjoy it, reading it as much I enjoyed writing it. Oh, I'm I'm sure they will. And I will put in the show notes the, the links so that you can easily find this because uh, you'll want to get a copy. So thank you. Oh, and thank you for joining me today. I'm I'm so glad you came. And to well, my thank listeners, you for me. oh, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, you, my listeners, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing you again next week, and we'll have more fascinating things to think about, talk about at that time. Aloha. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. 
Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.